Welcome to the St. Barnabas Anglican Church Podcast. We share sermons, teachings, and messages from St. Barnabas Anglican Church in Fort Worth, Texas. I'm Father Andrew, the senior pastor at the church, and I'm glad you're listening today. You're always invited to worship in person on Sunday mornings at 8 and 10 a.m. and on Wednesday nights at 6.30 p.m. You can also visit us online at stbarnabas.us. That's S-T-B-A-R-N-A-B-A-S dot U-S. And now, enjoy the podcast. Hallelujah, Christ is risen. The Lord is risen indeed. Hallelujah. I've never been scuba diving, but it's on my bucket list. I'm told that it's a blast. The idea of strapping an air tank on my back and exploring the underwater below sounds like great fun. Although my exploration is probably only going to be surface deep because I don't like the idea of diving really deep. In fact, my reluctancy about deep diving was confirmed when I read about a little bit of an interview with a former Navy diver and his experiences about diving really, really deep. He explained that he's been in those situations where he's had to dive so deep and so dark that it was almost impossible not to get disoriented. In fact, you couldn't see your hand in front of your face. You didn't know which way was up and down. All that was around you was darkness that engulfed you, and fear and panic began to set in. As I was reading about this, I thought, nope, no thanks. I can probably do a virtual deep dive and quarantine these days in the days to come. But I read on, and the obvious question was asked of this diver. So what do you do in situations like these? His response was quite simple. He said, you feel the bubbles. He continued by saying, when it's pitch black and you have no idea which way to go, You reach up with your hands and you feel the bubbles. The bubbles always drift up towards the surface. When you can't trust your feelings or your judgment, you can always trust the bubbles to get you to the top. I was struck by that this week, especially in this season that we find ourselves in due to COVID-19. Because in many ways, we can find ourselves at best a bit disoriented and in many times lost and engulfed in darkness as it may seem, both globally, nationally, and even individually as we try to make sense of what end is up in terms of our emotions and our mental state and well-being, our finances, our work, kids at home, and the list goes on and on. But this day, on this Easter morning, we are reminded to feel the bubbles, if you can allow me to use that analogy this morning, that reorient us, those that we can place our confident trust in, despite all that is disorienting, dark, and chaotic around us these days. Those bubbles are the moments, the words, and the truth as revealed in Jesus Christ, and certainly at the peak of his life and ministry this day, as we remember his triumph over sin and death, as captured in the pages of Scripture. 
Those, along with the Holy Spirit's guiding every time we open Scripture and seek Him in prayer, are the bubbles that keep us reoriented in life despite COVID-19 or whatever may face us in the days past this. So let's feel the bubbles this morning as we reorient our hearts and our homes and our heads this Easter day. Let's do so by looking back to the pages of Scripture in John chapter 20 that we just heard. So I'd invite you to open up to John chapter 20 in your Bible and follow along. I'd like to note that in verse 1, John's account of the first Easter morning begins in darkness. Notice, on that first day of the week we read, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. So many times we can gloss over that as a scene set for what will unfold in the moments to follow. But perhaps, for just a moment, we might let our minds ponder this. Ponder this image of biblical darkness and think about how it's used throughout Scripture. We would let our minds wander back to the book of beginnings, Genesis. And we remember that before God created anything, there is a void, there's a darkness, there's a chaos. And yet, God speaks. And when God speaks, he brings order and light and life. We might fast forward and think of Jonah, who kind of prefigures what we remember in these three holy days, who sat in the belly of a great fish in great darkness due to his disobedience of God, in the void, in the anxiety of his choices, in those hollow moments to ponder what would come next because of what he had failed to do. In Jesus' own day, you may recall uh, that many times darkness was seen as a choice that someone made to disobey God, or maybe their parents had made, um, in images where uh, one was blind because of their distance from God. So many times Jesus had to reorient them in their teachings and understandings, but the, the image is no less clear that throughout Scripture and even in biblical days and in the days that follow, as John writes, the use of darkness in Scripture points to chaos, points to the void, points to disorientation and distance from God. Initially, that first Easter morning was far from ordered and bright and joyful, it begins, in verse 1, in anxiety, in darkness, and chaos, as the events of the days prior are still lingering from the cross in the silence of Holy Saturday. But notice what happens in verse 2, the response to the darkness. I promise we're moving beyond verse 1 at this point. Um, in there, we read in verse 2 that Mary has this darkness compounded by the fear of recognizing that the tomb uh, had the stone rolled away. Notice she doesn't even go to the tomb or into the tomb just upon seeing it. Fear sets in and is compounded. And what does she do as her mind races? Where's Jesus? Where did they put him? What's happening? She doesn't even stop to fully evaluate it. Instead, John captures what she does. At the beginning of verse 2, we read, so she ran. And where does she run? She runs to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the beloved disciple who we often attribute as John. And where does she run and find them? She finds them in hiding. 
They're in their own shelter-in-place order. They're, they're not out of fear of a virus, but of violence. In the days following Jesus' crucifixion, wondering what will come of them as his disciples. Reeling in their own darkness, Mary bursts in, and likely out of breath, full of fear and panic, proclaims what she doesn't even know, as Scripture tells us. They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, we read, and we don't know where they've laid him. In their darkness, in their anxiety, what do Simon Peter and the beloved disciple do? Verse 3 tells us what? So Peter went with the other disciple, and they ran towards the tomb. There is, in verse 4, both of them running. In these three verses, really, there is more running in this gospel account than in any other gospel account if you put them all together combined. John doesn't do things by happenstance. In fact, none of the gospel writers do. So perhaps we're caused to pause and reflect upon that, to feel the bubbles, if we will, about what God may want us to receive therein. Because after all, as Christians, we believe that um, Scripture is not just a book to be read and digested, but is living and active. And the Holy Spirit brings things forth for us. And perhaps in a time such as this, in the midst of the anxiety and the chaos and the void and our own shelter and place orders that we can relate to many of these images, we can relate to the fact that as they ran, that's a natural response to times of darkness and chaos. We run as they did. Maybe not literally, although perhaps you have. Uh, we run figuratively in lots of ways, running this way and that, spinning our wheels, often getting worn out by the pace trying to make sense of it all. If I'm honest before you this morning, there's been a lot of running here at the church the past several weeks, and we owe a great debt of gratitude to so many who've joined in that running. Flipping church on a dime from in person to pushing it out uh, through the internet, trying to figure out new technology, audio issues, bandwidth for the internet, copier contracts, vendor contracts that we're not using, increasing communications. There's been a lot of running. Perhaps you could relate. Maybe there's been a lot of running in your life, too. Running to adapt, running to try to work from home with kids, running to figure out finances, running to figure out the options of what is next, or travel plans, running through fear and anxiety, running through lists, running through ways to cope, running, running, running. Running is often a response to that darkness and chaos because it's so disorienting, we want to make sense of it. We want it to stop. But notice what happens when the running finally does stop in verse 5. As they arrive at the tomb, they see the linen cloth lying there. That beloved disciple stops, sees it, waits for his elder, waits for Peter. Peter, of course, upon finally arriving, bursts right in, which is typical of his temperament. And as he arrives, we notice that John goes in great depth and detail in these verses about the manner in which the cloths are lying there. We read the face cloth that was upon Jesus' head was not lying with the rest, but is rather folded in place by itself. It looks as if we could envision it for a moment, as though the body were not unwrapped and the cloths were strewn in the corner as Mary were worried that the body had been taken. 
nor as though they were carefully unwrapped and folded up um, as though someone got up and took them away. But rather, the cloths are exactly as they would have been left when they wrapped the body. As one biblical scholar noted, it's as if uh, the air were let out of a balloon, and they're just as they remained. I've read that archaeologists have found at least one first century tomb where Jesus' tomb would have been likely located nearby. And the grave cloths were found just as Scripture tells us, wrapped around what is left of bones in this case. And they gave archaeologists a visual of what John describes as though the face cloth and the rest of the linens, where they would have been on a corpse that were still there. And yet in this place, there is no body, there are no bones. It's just as though the cloths are left right where they were found. Still assessing this situation, Scripture tells us, seeming that Simon Peter's just standing there still trying to make sense of this all, the younger disciple comes in, taking in the same scene that is before him. In verse 8, we read quite simply, Then the other disciple, who'd reached the tomb first, also went in, and we notice what? He saw and believed. He saw and believed. Having first been overwhelmed with fear and darkness, void and chaos, now it gives way way to another overwhelming sense of belief that sheds all that away, just as that body had shed those cloths in the tomb, that body of Jesus. Certainly, this disciple had had belief prior, no doubt. After all, he'd followed Jesus for three years. He believed that Jesus was the Son of God. He'd walked those steps with Jesus. But we read here that John says he saw and believed. So what is it that he believed? What is it that prompts this response? He sees the evidence, and he believes that Jesus is alive. A new creation was breaking forth. He believed that darkness that gripped his own heart was melting away as emblematic of the darkness that gripped the world due to sin and chaos and the void that distanced every human heart from God has now given way to order and new birth and new creation. That this darkness give way to light. He saw and believed that there is indeed a new beginning, a new day that breaks forth just as the light was chasing away the darkness as the morning progressed, both literally and figuratively. He saw and believed. He did so, as John tells us in his gospel in verse 9, having not yet fully even understood the scriptures that Jesus might rise from the dead. My friends, feel the bubbles. In our shelter-in-place orders, in spite of them on this Easter morning, in spite of the seeming darkness and chaos of these days that we may relate to wholeheartedly in this text, in spite of everything that will confront us in this life on the other side of this problem, in the midst of these problems, look at the evidence as the disciples did this morning. The tomb is still empty. A new day has dawned. And Jesus is still on his throne. In spite of all the changes of life, the truth remains changeless. In spite of all the changes of life, the truth remains changeless. That truth, the truth, reorients us 
despite the darkness, the depression, the fear, the anxiety of any situation that that beloved disciple captures in such a response of belief. And I love the fact that John in his gospel doesn't even name that beloved disciple. It's almost as though it creates a space whereby we can place ourselves in that moment. That beloved disciple could be you and me. His name could be Tom or Glenn or Joan or Judy, Michelle or Michael, Chloe or Claire, Jennifer or Leslie. We could put our own selves in that text as that beloved disciple is you and me. We see the evidence and we believe. Not that we hadn't had faith before, although as an aside, if there's anyone who's tuning in who maybe hasn't had or has doubted, um, and this spurs some thoughts with you, um, reach out. In these days, we are still here for you, and we'd love to open that dialogue further. But for those who have believed, perhaps it is the belief, the hope, that even though not fully comprehended even in this moment or understood, the resurrection reorders everything. Not off in heaven someday, but today. A new day has dawned. New life has begun as we place our confident trust in Jesus. All will be set right, even at times and even in times such as these, when it seems like anything but this may be true. We see and we believe. And so our response on Easter is always in a moment to reaffirm our baptismal vows, to recommit ourselves to such belief. And so we feel the bubbles and are reoriented. We stop running. We embrace such belief and anxiety melts away as we look at the evidence and allow it to sink deeply in our hearts. Jesus is alive and remains on his throne and is in control. God's kingdom is never in trouble, nor will it ever be shaken or overthrown. Rather, his kingdom will only advance and prevail until it has reached its conclusion, whereby all principalities and powers and every knee bows down to the King of Kings as his plans meet earth forevermore, as we pray every time we pray the Lord's Prayer. We see and we believe. We see and we have hope. We see and we have joy. And so we believe. And so we can proclaim with confidence this day, on this day, despite all of its challenges, Alleluia, Christ is risen. The Lord is risen indeed. Thank you for listening to the St. Barnabas Anglican Church Podcast. May the Lord bless you and keep you this week, and we'll see you next time. This episode of the St. Barnabas Anglican Church Podcast is copyright 2020, St. Barnabas Anglican Church in Fort Worth, Texas, all rights reserved.